Hierapolis and Laodicea. You'll see those three cities, those two cities mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 13. So it was kind of a tri-city area. About 100 miles to the east was Ephesus. Hierapolis and Laodicea were of greater importance in that area. It had gotten to the point to where they were of greater importance. The commerce and trade was going through those cities, kind of living Colossae to the outskirts, kind of a smaller town. But there was a heresy that had developed in the church there, referred to as the Colossian heresy. It's not known exactly what it was. Many There's been big debates about what it is exactly, but we'll get into that later on. Uh, at any rate, Paul wrote mainly because this heresy presented itself to the Colossian believers, and he wanted to go on the attack against it. I said last week that Bishop Lightfoot, back in uh, a great commentator, uh, and he wrote on the book of Colossians back in 1875, I think, said that uh, an, an interesting statement to me, and I saw it quoted by everybody else, and he said that um, the church at Colossae was the least important church Paul wrote to. And I thought it was a strange statement. I told you last week that just because a church is small or maybe doesn't seem to have uh, the influence that a, a larger church might have doesn't mean that it's the least important church. If, the God has, if, if a church is a true church of Christ, it's not a least important church. It's as important as any other church in God's plan. It can have, the same, it can have an impact that God wants it to have. And so we talked about that. Well, let's go to Colossians chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 8 tonight. We're going to look at Paul's greeting to the Colossians, his greeting, greetings to the Colossians. One in, in verses 1 and 2, Paul has identification of himself and his audience. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul identifies himself in verse 1. He says, I'm an apostle, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Not an unusual way for Paul to designate himself, since he does so in many other letters, like Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, you read those letters often and you see that. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But as an apostle, he was a commissioned representative of Christ. He was invested with full authority from the Lord to carry out his mission to the Gentiles. Some people, some men represent kings, some represent presidents, some represent prime ministers and so on. But Paul represented the Lord Jesus Christ as an apostle with full authority. And so when Paul later on addresses the Colossian heresy, he does so with the authority of an apostle, an apostle of Christ. And then he says he's an apostle by the will of God. God's will was the means by which Paul was chosen to be an apostle. It was not an optional thing or up for discussion. Uh, Paul didn't think about his vocational choices and consider which would be the best option for him based on his gifts and his likes and dislikes. None of that happened. He was trying to kill Christians, trying to destroy the verse literally says he was destroying the church of God. He was going after it. His, his goal was to destroy the church entirely, get rid of it. And uh, God came along in Acts 9 in his sovereign, uh, sovereignty, and he, you know the story there. You can look in Acts 9 and read this. And he saved Paul, and he called him to be an apostle. It's, it says there, he said to Ananias uh, about Paul, the Lord said, he is a chosen instrument of mine. A chosen instrument of mine. It wasn't up to Paul. It was the will of God, the uh, decreed will of God, that Paul be an apostle. So he identifies himself, verse 1. Verse 2, he identifies his co-worker, Timothy. He says, Timothy, our brother, literally Timothy, the brother, is what it says, actually. Um, 
It's not unusual also that he would include Timothy, because Timothy is often included in uh, greetings to other churches. For example, 2 Corinthians, you see Paul and Timothy greeting the church. Philemon, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Philippians, and so on. And we know that Paul thought of Timothy as like a very, his very own son. Definitely in a spiritual sense, he was his beloved son, his true son in the faith. And Paul had uh, discipled Timothy. And so here he simply calls him Timothy the brother. Then Paul identifies his audience in verse 2. <clears throat> the saints and faithful brethren in Christ were at Colossae. We talked about the people who lived in Colossae last week and some of the uh, information about them there. We talked about higher... Look at uh, Colossians 4.13, just so you can see that. Paul says, I testify for Epaphras that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis, the nearby cities. He's concerned about that whole tri-city tri region. And so Paul designates the Colossian believers in two ways. In verse 2, he says, uh, he says you are the saints... I'm writing to you who are saints. Now, I know that most of the Sunday night crowd understands probably that the word saints here means holy ones. These are those who exclusively belong to God, separated unto God for his purposes. They're his people. And it's not some advanced level of Christianity that someone has attained to because they are called saints. They haven't you know, achieved something in life because they've been like Mother Teresa and they've worked in Calcutta, India, or wherever she was at, and, and ministered to the poor and and all this kind of thing, and then they achieve this saint-like saint -like status one day. Uh, no, all Christians are known as saints, and Paul addresses them as saints often. It simply means holy ones. And then also he says, these are the faithful brethren in Christ, saints and faithful brethren. Not two groups of people, but the saints here are the faithful brethren in Christ. Now this is, uh, Paul normally identifies people or many times as saints that he writes to, but not as faithful brethren in the greeting. The only, other, the only exception to that is Ephesians chapter 1, where he says, saints and faithful. And so this is unusual that he would do this. These believers in Colossians are faithful brothers in Christ. In other words, they're firmly committed to the cause of Christ. They are steadfast for the gospel ministry, even though they're under attack from false doctrine. And we'll see that as we develop the book later on. And they needed encouragement. They needed teaching. And they needed instruction. And Paul gives them that. But nevertheless, they are faithful in the service of God. And how is it that these brothers, or these Christians are saints? How is it they're called saints? How is it that they're called holy ones and faithful ones in, in uh, serving the Lord? It's because they are saints and faithful brethren in Christ. They're in Christ. They find their identity in Christ. They find their source of strength in Christ. He is their all in all. So Paul identifies himself and his audience. <clears throat> Then in verses 3 and 4, we see Paul's expression of gratitude. His expression of gratitude, it says there, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, we give thanks to God. The we is, no doubt, Paul and Timothy, both of them together, thanking God for those at Colossae. You'll notice that Thanksgiving is a mark of Paul's prayers. Constantly repeating this theme that we should be thankful, uh, reminding us to give thanks to God. And thanksgiving should be just as natural. I know this is not the case. It should be just as natural to the believer as breathing would be, right? We should be those who are marked by thanksgiving. Um, he says it again in 112, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And over and over again he says it. He talks about thanksgiving. You read Ephesians. 
Mike's got me thinking more about Ephesians these days. I've been reading Ephesians lately a lot, and uh, he talks about giving thanks. And I've been struck by that a lot lately. It reminds me of Daniel, who in Daniel 6, after he was told to don't pray anymore, Daniel, he goes to pray, and it says he prayed as he previously did, and he gave thanks, it says. So this is something that goes back all through the Old Testament, and Paul picks up the practice. And, you know, he says it over and over again. So let's, let's think about this for, for a little while. Let's, let's, let's be, become people who are marked by thanksgiving. It's something we need to practice in our lives, that, uh, that we need to make a habit of in our prayers, that we're thankful to God. We're giving thanks to God for many things, so many things to be thankful for. Stop and, as people say, used to say all the time, count your blessings, count your many blessings every day. There's so many of them. Be thankful to God. He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you in verse 3. There's something else to consider here in addition to thanksgiving. Have you noticed that every time when Paul is, is speaking about God, he does this all the time, and it struck me more this time than ever before. He is not only addressing God the Father in his, in his, in his uh, letters, but he addresses Christ and the Holy Spirit as well. And he intermingles all three of them. He never says, now I want, you to, I want to talk today about the Trinitarian God. I said this in Sunday school this morning. I want to talk about the third person of the Trinity. He never says any of that. He just says, I want, to, I want you to know about God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 1. He, he, he talks about Jesus Christ. He talks about God. Look at verse 2. He talks about in Christ and God our Father. In verse 3, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 4, Christ Jesus. In verse 8, the Spirit. Every, in all his letters, he's always constantly intermingling these, these three around individually. Paul is always taking up with God as not just God the Father, but as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, as we talked about in our statement of faith. <clears throat> God who is one God and yet expressing himself in three different persons. And Paul's always addressing God like that. He says, we are always praying for you, Colossians. In other words, Paul is regular and is consistent in his prayer for the Colossian believers. He's always praying about them. He's, he's constant in his prayer time. I was telling Omar a minute ago for the service, something uh, Omar has a, a, a uh, doesn't have a prayer request. I'm, making it a prayer. I'm not going to make a prayer request out loud here, but there's something I'm praying for for Omar. And uh, I, I thought about it one time, and I prayed for him, then I forgot about it. And I told him, like, man, I, forgot, I totally forgot to write this down so I can be regular in praying for Omar about this situation here. Uh, Omar's not in trouble or anything, so don't wonder what's... Everything's good with Omar. It's a good thing. Um, but the work of prayer is so important, and we give so little time to it, don't we? Because we think, this is what we think in our mind, we think, you know, I've got activities to do. I've got a, a job to do. I've got work to do. I've got to get that uh, thing done over there. I've got my house to take care of. I've got to uh, do the, the church activities. You know, I've got to go down there and, and do this or that. But we don't. But prayers on last on the list because we've got things to do. We've got a lot of things to do. Martin Luther said, um, he said, I've got such a busy day today that I better spend the first three hours of it in prayer. And I'm not expecting anybody here to spend three hours in prayer. I'm just saying that. That should be the priority prayer. We, we give it such little time, such little, place such little emphasis on it in our daily routine. And that's something that I was convicted about again reading this. What is my emphasis on prayer in my own life every day? I just cast it to the side because I've got to run to the work or I've got to do this or I've got to do that activity over there. This has got to be done over here after all. Where does prayer get its place in all that? 
it gets crowded out with all, all duties and responsibilities and even leisure time that we have. And so prayer becomes lesser important. But Paul is talking about praying for the churches here. We are always praying for you. You know, I think it's uh, I think it was Emily that last week, I think uh, Omar said, you know, Emily told him that why, why aren't we praying, why don't we have prayer requests for the deaf in our bulletin? And I thought, we don't have prayer requests for the deaf in our bulletin? <laughs> it just never struck me that before, and, and now we're doing that. I don't know why this didn't happen before. We overlooked it somehow, but... Now we should, we should be praying for the deaf, the hearing, everybody in our church that has a need. <clears throat> so prayer, very important, that we're regular, that we're consistent at it like Paul was. Well, why is Paul thankful for the Colossian believers? Why do they keep praying for them on a regular basis? Look at verse 4. He says, We do this since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, your faith in Christ and your love. Remember, there's no indication that Paul ever went to Colossae personally. Probably never went there. He didn't even did not know them, you know, uh, personally. Um, if he was, in Ro- he was in Rome at this time, by the way, and if he was ever there, it's strange that he never mentions that he was there. He says, we heard of your faith. We heard a report about it. Um, in other words, he relied on a report he, a report he heard about the Colossian believers. Um, so something in that report must have been, showed that there was, they, they had transformed lives. Because of the gospel, because he says, we've heard about your faith in Christ. We've heard about the love you have for all the saints. The news got to him in Rome uh, from Colossae as he was in prison, and he heard about that. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, I wonder if news about our church here traveled to other parts of America. What, what would people say about us? In fact, if people are hearing reports about us in other parts of the country, are they... What are they saying about us now? They recommend our church when people come down to Tampa. They say, oh, you need, you need to go to Grace Bible Church of Tampa. That's a solid church right there. They love the Lord. They're serving him. They're serious about him. The people are really kind. <clears throat> what do they say about us, I wonder? Or is there some kind of negative connotation to our church when they talk about it? We've had people visit here from other places. Um, what kind of reports are they saying about us? The reports about the Colossians, <clears throat> Christians were... Uh, they were good reports. And so Paul's grateful for them. He's grateful for, first of all, for their faith in Christ Jesus, verse 4. Their faith in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> By the way, you'll see also in verses 4 and 5 that, that uh, grouping of three uh, virtues that you see often in, in Paul's epistles. Uh, uh, it, it talks about faith and love and hope there, verses 4 and 5. You see it in 1 Corinthians 13. You see it in other places as well. It pops up again here. But he talks about the faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ Jesus has to do with the realm that their faith operated in. The realm that their faith operated in. Their, their faith not only rested upon Christ, but it was inspired by Christ and exercised in vital union with him. Uh, they, they abode in Christ, John 15, and they showed it in their lives. In other words, they not only believed in Christ, but they lived in him as well. Their faith in Christ was a living reality. People could see that. And so the report came to Paul. These people have, their faith in Christ is, is, the, real, is the real deal. It's reality. So Paul's grateful for that. He's grateful for their love also. The love which you have, he says, for all the saints. Another mark of a true believer that is often overlooked is love that we have for each other. And I've seen, I've been in different churches in my life, and I've seen saints uh, treat each other pretty badly at times. Not only in, uh, not only in churches, but in the workplace. Uh, I've seen it. 
And it can, be, it can happen. Uh, they treat each other not very lovingly all the time, but the New Testament pictures it totally different. The New Testament says we're to be about loving the brethren. And Jesus made it clear in John 15, 17. He said, this I command you, that you love one another. And the Apostle John got the message because in 1 John 3, 14, he says, we know that we have passed from death into life because why? We love the brethren, right? We love the brethren. That is the mark that we truly know the Lord. And so we, we love them. Let me ask you a question. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ truly? Do you love them? I don't mean do you have an emotional feeling necessarily. Think about 1 Corinthians 13 and what love really is. Do you love them? Do you show love towards them? Are you kind towards them? Because we're not all easy to love, are we? I mean, we irritate each other. There's things about us that irritate other people. Idiosyncrasies that we all have that drive other people nuts. And someone says, I wish Mark was not like he is. I wish he did things differently. I wish he had different habits and personality. And I, and I no doubt you're right. I told Mike recently, I've told him before, I said, you know, I used to think that certain people were strange and weird. Then it occurred to me that I was strange as well and weird. And so I have to be loved as well because I have things about me that rub people the wrong way. And so we need to learn to love each other, even though we're in irritation often to each other. But Paul says, hey, I commend you for your love that you have for all the saints. Very important. And they practice this love. Probably they, this, all the saints is the saints in the Lycus Valley where they were, obviously they lived together, rubbed shoulders with them. And so Paul expresses his gratitude for them. Then in verses 5 through 8, we see Paul's instruction in the gospel. His instruction in the gospel. If you're looking at this passage carefully, you're going to see Paul go from here, then he's going to go over here, then he's going to go over here, then he's going to go over here. And it's kind of, it's kind of a difficult passage to look at. But he is continuing the thought in verse 5 from verse 4, but then he subtly changes gears to the thought, the idea of the gospel ministry and and there's some overlap here we'll see that but hang with me so paul instructs the colossians in certain principles about the gospel it's kind of a neat little aside almost this little passage here about the gospel about what the gospel is and about what it does <clears throat> certain things that he teaches he instructs them on first of all he says the gospel is the basis of hope it's the basis of hope verse five he says, well, verse 4, since you heard, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of the truth, the gospel. You heard about this hope in the word of the truth, the gospel. Um, and one reason that it's good news is because of the hope that it brings to us. The gospel is the basis of hope. Paul was thankful for the believers because their hope was laid up in heaven. And the hope had become reality to them because they had accepted the gospel. Before then, they had no hope. The gospel brings hope to the hopeless. Brings hope to the hopeless. And that's a tremendous principle um, regarding the gospel, that we have hope. I, don't, I have to admit to you, I don't often think about heaven, I'll be honest with you. I know Mike talks about it a lot, and I think, man, Mike thinks about heaven a lot. <laughs> I need to think about it more than I do. I think about what's going on here. I think about the work here, and Mike does too, but... I need to think about heaven more. And verses like this get me to think about this more. The hope that we have in heaven is a tremendous thing. Maybe I just, I know, I, I know it's there, but I kind of take it for granted, I think. And I don't, I don't think about it a lot. But this gives us hope to think about this kind of thing. If, you, if you, you are a believer in Christ, you have this tremendous hope. Whatever's going on in your life right now, whatever's happening on earth, whatever happens in your life, <clears throat> one day you have a hope laid up for you in heaven. 
have that hope relayed up in heaven right now, by the way. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection of Christ had never happened, as some were saying in that time, then all would be hopeless. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if we hoped in Christ in this life only, he said, we are of all men most to be pitied. Most to be pitied if all we have is hope in Christ in this life. Well, we have nothing else. There's no eternity. There's nothing, there's nothing else going on. There's no future. There's no heaven. There's nothing. <clears throat> if that is the case and our faith is vain, he says, if that is the case, there's no resurrection, then we're still in our sins. There's no hope at all. We have nothing. So somebody explain to me, please, if, why Paul would suffer so much if there was no hope for him. No hope laid up for him in eternity. But the Colossians were motivated by the hope that they had. Colossians 1.5 tells us. And, <clears throat> and it says that not only that, but they were identified with, with the object of hope. Uh, their object of hope uh, because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. And it was that hope in heaven that thrilled them, that motivated them, that inspired them to continue to live for the Lord and to carry on. They clung to that hope. The gospel offers this kind of hope. It's laid up for them. It's the idea of being stored away or put away for future use. It's, it's, it's like a reservation. Like I remember when I was a kid, and I, I think they do this now, but I haven't seen it very often. They used to have the layaway. You go to the store, if you, you, know, if you couldn't buy something, you'd lay it away, and you'd say, hey, I'm going to pay on it every month until Christmas gets here, and then I'll pick it up then. And you look forward to that time where you could go pick it up, right? You'd pay a little bit every month. Then at Christmas time, you'd pick up your, your gift. Oh, man, I got it now. And you were looking forward to that always. And that's what this is. Our, we have a hope reserved for us in heaven. It's reserved for us in heaven. The believer has a, re, a reservation in heaven. It's his destination. We're going to be with Christ. Think about this. What does it mean to be, in, to be in heaven one day? We're going to be with Christ, right? We'll be with him for eternity. We're going to be free from the curse of sin. We're going to be delivered from our, the physical infirmities of our earthly body. Right, Alice? Alice had a hard time getting here the last couple weeks because of her uh, physical problems. But it's going to be delivered from that. We're going to be not experience pain anymore. No sadness, no misery, because we're going to be in heaven. We have the hope laid up for us there. That's a great thing to think about. Peter said the same, much the same in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again through a living hope the hope we have now, a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, different word, but reserved in heaven for you. Again, in Peter, Peter tells us that. So the gospel is the basis of hope. And then secondly, the gospel is the message of truth. It's the message of truth, Colossians 1.5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel had come to the, to the Colossians and they had received it. And it, literally it says this, you heard previously in the word of the truth of the gospel, all one statement. The gospel is the word of truth. It's the message that is characterized by truth. You know, if you tell someone important, you've heard people say to you, they're going to tell you something very important and they say to you, I swear it's the what? It's the gospel truth. That's what he's talking about here. The gospel is the truth. It's ultimate truth. It's absolute truth. The heresy taught by the, by the people that were influencing the Colossians was not the truth at all, but the gospel of Christ was nothing but the truth. <clears throat> Be careful about the gospel you're listening to. Be careful about what you hear. If you hear something that does not line up with the gospel, it's not truth. It's a lie, altogether a lie. 
So be careful what you're hearing out there on the radio or TV or another wherever. And even it's like what Paul said in Galatians 1, even if we, that is Paul himself and his own companions, or if an angel from heaven, like you know Joseph Smith claimed that an angel from heaven delivered his uh, documents to him uh, for Mormonism, if even we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Very serious thing to, to have a false gospel because the gospel itself, the gospel of Christ, is the ultimate truth. Truth is always hard to come by, isn't it? There's much deceit in the world, much deceit preached everywhere, but the gospel is pure because it's the word of truth. We can trust in it and not worry about being led astray by it. The gospel is the message of truth. Thirdly, Paul says the gospel is universal in its outreach. It's universal in its outreach. Verse 6 says, The gospel which has come to you, just as it has in all the world, also it's constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you, also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. This gospel has come to all the way to Colossae, the small town, out of the way, off the main trade routes, even away from Hierapolis and Laodicea. And the gospel had come to them, even them, to hear it, as it has in all the world. The person who is able to receive the gospel is a blessed person. And the person who accepts the gospel is even a more blessed person, those that embrace it. And the gospel in Paul's time was traveling around the world. And it was set up for that. And Mike Liptak talked about this a few weeks ago. The Roman Empire was in control of the world that time, and so there was a time of peace. They have a bunch of wars going on, so he had this time of peace that would make it conducive to spread the gospel. And roads were built everywhere uh, because the Romans were great road builders, and they had roads all over the place, and people were able to travel the roads. Paul was able to travel roads and spread the gospel to people. Greek language was spoken throughout the world at the time. So you could, you could go to different places and speak in that language, and people would get it. They would understand, and it was the language of the common man, Koine Greek. And people could understand, and they could, they could pick up on it, and they could hear the gospel preached to them. And so all these things were ready in God's timing for the spread of the gospel. But many barriers had to be crossed in order to carry the gospel, for, in order for it to be spread. For example, geographical barriers had to be crossed, and they were. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but also Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the world, remotest part of the world, right? And so you're going to be witnesses all, everywhere. And the gospel was just as liable to go to the great city of Rome, and it did, as it was to the island of Malta in Acts 28. Just a small island. Paul himself took the gospel to Syria, Cyprus, Galatia, Asia Minor, Macedonia, Achaia, Palestine. He crossed mountains, rivers, valleys, oceans <laughs> to go to Rome in particular. And so geographical barriers were crossed in order to get the gospel out to people because the gospel was universal in its outreach. And then racial barriers were crossed as well. <clears throat> the gospel, first of all, went to the Jews, and they large, largely rejected it. And then Peter, the dyed-in-the-wool Jew, had to take the gospel to the Gentile Cornelius, right, in Acts chapter 10. And then uh, Philip preached to an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Philip preached to the despised Samaritans. And Paul was appointed to go to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So regardless of culture, race, whatever, the gospel crossed all those barriers, went everywhere. And social barriers were crossed. I mean, social status in society. 
What, let me ask you a question. What class, of God, what class of people is the gospel designed to reach? It's designed to reach all men, right? The gospel is for all men everywhere, regardless of social status, from kings to paupers to everywhere in between. The gospel is for everybody. Why? Because all men are sinners, right? Kings are sinners, and so are paupers, and so is everybody in between. All men are condemned, and so they need to hear the gospel. <clears throat> we know that according to Luke chapter 4, the Lord was anointed to preach the gospel to who? The poor, right? He preached the gospel to the poor. In Acts 9, Paul, it said Paul would not only preach to the Gentiles, but also to kings. In Acts 23, Paul is speaking to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. In Acts 24, he is speaking to uh, Ananias, the high priest. In Acts 24, he's speaking to the Roman authority, Felix. Then in Acts 26, he's, he's speaking to a king, King Agrippa, just like God said he would. You're going to preach before kings one day, and he did. Paul witnessed to men of the most high, in the most highest places of authority and also the most common of men. Paul did it all. Based on Philemon 19, Paul probably led Philemon, a wealthy slave owner, to Christ. And, and in the same book, he says, by the way, I want you to know that I, I've begotten your slave, Onesimus, in my chains. In other words, I won, I led him to Christ as well. He led both the slave owner and a slave to the Lord crossing all social barriers. By the way, Paul was influential also in the salvation of Lydia, a wealthy woman, seller of purple in Acts 16. So the gospel is for who? It's for the upper class, right? For the middle class, for the lower class. Nobody is exempt. The gospel is for all people. So social barriers were crossed. And then next, the gospel is inherently powerful. It's inherently powerful. Verse 6 says that this gospel that's come into all the world is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also. It's constantly bearing fruit and increasing. In other words, the gospel has power to change lives. And he says it does two things. It is constantly bearing fruit, which speaks of an action that's ongoing. It's always doing this throughout the world. The, The true gospel affects a person's life. It affects a person's life. It transforms that person. It bears fruit in his life. Just like a tree bears fruit and grows in size, so the gospel produces fruit in, in, in a believer's life. And just like a fruit, uh, if a tree didn't bear fruit, then it's not, there's something wrong there that's supposed to bear fruit. There's something wrong. And a gospel that bears no fruit ceases to be a gospel at all. So people say, oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I believe the gospel. And their lives never change. There's no evidence at all. <clears throat> there's no fruit born. That's not true, because the gospel is constantly bearing fruit, it says very plainly in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. Produce, produces fruit in the lives of people. What did Paul say in Romans 1? He says the gospel, gospel is the power of God. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. <clears throat> and then the gospel is increasing, he says. The influence of the gospel is increasing in the world. The number of people being saved is increasing in the world. The number of believers is increasing. There's an internal transformation in people's lives. There's fruit born, and there's an external growth of the gospel. Look over in Acts chapter 2 for a minute. Acts chapter 2, and let's go through a little of these, a few verses here. <clears throat> and let's see what he's talking about, this increase of the gospel. Acts 2.41. <clears throat> On the day of Pentecost, it says here, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added how many people? About 3,000 souls, right? 
increase. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. But many, uh, I'm sorry, two, look at 247. 247. The people were praising God. Uh, they were having favor with all the people, rather, the apostles. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, day, by day those who were being saved. By the way, it's the Lord who adds to their number, right? We don't have a campaign to see how many people we can have in our church and how many souls we can try to save and all that. Like I've been in those campaigns, by the way. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about what? There's my 5,000 I knew was there, Sandy, that couldn't find anywhere for some reason. Acts 5.14. Acts 5.14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Look at 6.1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. In verse 7 of the same chapter, the word of God kept on spreading. What kept on spreading? The word of God, right? And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So the gospel is increasing. The Lord's adding to their number. The gospel cannot be held down. It's going to be effective in the world. It will be effective in the world. There's no doubt about it at all. doesn't mean God's going to save everybody. But here's the gospel. It doesn't mean that there's not certain parts of the world that are less fruitful than others. It could be in, part, in certain parts of the world that God is judging people. I don't know what God's doing. It could be judgment of God on certain people for certain reasons, and maybe that's why there's not a lot of fruit born in certain areas of the country. I'm saying that the gospel will take effect, though, in people's lives, and, will, and fruit will be produced. And when, it, when the gospel takes effect, that society is even better off than it was before. And then, fifthly, the gospel is all of grace. It's all of grace. Verse 6, the last couple lines, since the day you heard the gospel and understood the grace of God and truth. You understood the grace of God and truth. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that most people do not understand the grace of God and truth, not even Christians. Don't understand it. People are always looking for salvation in their own works. They're looking to save themselves. But the gospel is all about what? The grace of God, right? Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. The Colossian heresy wanted to make very little of Christ and much of religion and, and philosophy. And Paul makes it clear that the gospel is based upon the grace of God. A spiritually dead man cannot raise himself up from spiritual death. Only the grace of God getting a hold of that man can, can, can give him new life in Christ. Only through grace alone. So the gospel is all the grace. Sixth, the gospel is humanly transmitted. It's humanly transmitted. Let's read verses 7 and 8. Just as you learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit, just as you learned the gospel from Epaphras. The gospel doesn't magically appear to someone all of a sudden through a dream or through an angelic visitor. God doesn't speak to the hearts of his elect and let them know through an audible voice or a silent voice that, Yes, you're the one to be saved. No, he has chosen to use weak human beings to carry out the gospel message. You and I are the ones responsible to carry out the gospel message because the gospel is humanly transmitted, transmitted by the likes of you, you and I. The verse says in Romans 10, How beautiful are the feet 
of those who bring good news of uh, good tidings, good news of good things. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. He's talking about people with feet of clay, carrying the gospel anywhere and everywhere to do the work that God wants them to do. And so God has laid a responsible upon whom? Upon us, upon his people, to carry the gospel. And Colossians 1.7 says that Epaphras was the one, he was the man who carried the gospel to the people of Colossae. Epaphras was from Colossae. He was probably saved under Paul's ministry, maybe in Ephesus. doesn't tell us. Somehow he got the gospel. He came back, introduced the gospel to the people, and he transmitted that gospel to them. And not only them, but also nearby Hierapolis and Laodicea. He was concerned for the whole Tri-City area. And, may, and some think he even planted three churches, possibly. So, that's a tremendous thing. Think of the tremendous impact that God, through one messenger of the gospel, made. Through one man who made himself available to God to go transmit, to go give the gospel to other people. We know God is sovereign in salvation, right? I know that. God is the one who saves people. But the fact of the matter is, no one will be saved unless someone opens his mouth and preaches the gospel to someone else. And that is a means ordained by God to an end to save people from their sins. God is ordained by the foolishness of preaching that people are saved, right? Through the foolishness of preaching, people are saved. And notice that it says here that it's an interesting way it's phrased. They learned the gospel from Epaphras. They learned it from him. He taught them the gospel, in other words. It wasn't a five-minute gospel presentation where he said, okay, now pray a prayer after me. It's not what he did here. He taught them the gospel. And we must spend time, some time, teaching the essentials of the gospel to the lost people so they'll understand the gospel. They'll see what the true gospel is, and they'll get it. Certain things that must be taught, they don't have to become Bible scholars in order to be saved. They have to have a basic knowledge of the essential truths of the gospel. For example, and you all know this, they must understand that God is holy and not to be trifled with. They must understand that they have broken God's law and are rebellious sinners against him. <clears throat> they must realize that they are under condemnation for their sin and their destiny is hell. They need to know that God loves them and Christ is, is the solution to, to sin, the sin problem, that he died, he rose again for them. And they must learn that salvation only comes through Christ and him alone through repentance and faith. So it's our job to do what? To teach people the gospel because they must learn the gospel in order to understand it, in order to be saved. Epaphras did that in the Lycus Valley. And we, it's our job to do it here in Tampa. And look how Epaphras describes, or Paul describes Epaphras in verse 7. He says, you learned the gospel from Epaphras. By the way, he's our beloved fellow servant. <clears throat> our beloved fellow servant, that word servant there is the word for slave. He's our beloved fellow slave. Just like Paul was a slave of Christ, Epaphras follows right in his footsteps. He also is a slave of Christ. And Paul considered him a co-worker in the gospel. And then he goes on to say in verse 7, he is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. That word servant is a different word from the other word. It's the same word they get, we, we get deacon from. And it's a service in general is the idea behind that. He's a slave. He's a servant and in, in different ways. He probably served Paul in different ways and in, 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 in prison with him in Rome. He probably helped him out eventually. He ended up in prison, it looks like. Um, and so Epaphras was faithful, a faithful minister of the gospel. And he was an extension of Paul's ministry because he was a servant of Christ on Paul's behalf, it says. I think that if Paul himself could have gone to Colossae, and he probably wanted to is my guess, 
And I think he wanted to because in Philemon he indicates, hey, I want to prepare me guest lodgings when I come, but he never seems to make it there. I think he wanted to go to Colossae and preach the gospel himself, but he knew he couldn't or he didn't, didn't have time, he was in jail, he was all over the world preaching the gospel, and so guess who did it? Epaphras, who was from Colossae. Epaphras did what Paul could never do, minister in his hometown of Colossae. Why? Because Paul never made it to Colossae, it looks like. And so, guess somebody else had to do it. We can't have, you know, the great preachers necessarily come, excuse me, Mike, Mike is a great preacher, other great preachers come in here and do the work for us, and so guess who's got to do it? We do. We live in Tampa. We have to carry out the ministry here. Great sermon this morning, by the way, Mike. Um, I'll talk to him about that later. <laughs> I'm going to take that out of the that little part about, yeah. <laughs> you know what? Wherever God has placed you in your work, your job, whatever, uh, he's placed you there. He didn't place Pastor Mike there in your company. Guess what? Pastor Mike can't do in your in your circle of influence, what you can do. He can't do it because he's not there to do it. You're there to do it. You've been given that circle of influence. You can influence those people for the gospel. So you, it's on you, it's on me to do it wherever we've been placed, not on him. It's on him to do it wherever he's been placed. And so we're to do what Epaphras did, minister where we are for the glory of God, right? And by the way, who was it that informed Paul about Paul said, we heard about your faith and uh, the faith of the Colossians in Christ, their love for all the saints. We heard about that. Who was it one, the one that informed them? Look at verse 8. And he, Epaphras, also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Looks like it was Epaphras that made that, that gave Paul that information in Rome. He told Paul, hey, you've got to see those, those believers in Colossae. they they got some strong faith in Christ. They love the brethren. They even have love in the Spirit, it says. Love in the Spirit. In other words... Not just love that any one of us naturally could give, but love in the Spirit, love that's motivated by the Spirit. Love is the fruit of the Spirit, we know that. So that love was the love that that honored God. And Epaphras commends them, especially for their love, since he mentions it twice here. And this is how we want to be as a church. We want to operate in the realm of faith in Christ. We want to live or have the Spirit produce love in our hearts so that we we can love the brethren, right? Love the saints here in the church. And express love for the saints. We want to be involved personally in the gospel outreach, <clears throat> not depending on a few people in here, Pastor Mike, uh, some of the people that are known as evangelists, but we have to get involved ourselves, right, in the gospel outreach. We want to see fruit born here in Tampa, Florida, and around the world. We want to see an increase in the gospel here. <clears throat> so this is Paul's greeting to the Colossians in the first eight verses next week. Verse 9, we'll pick up with Paul's prayer for the Colossians. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, you thank you for this time together, for your word. Uh, once again, we pray that we will be those who would be interested in loving the body of Christ, um, having that faith in Christ that would uh, be a real faith people could see, and that we would be involved in the gospel outreach here in our, in our, our area, that we'd reach people for the gospel, that we'd be committed to doing that. And we just pray this in Christ's name. Amen.